G'day everyone, welcome back to the Teamcast. My name's Harry Moffat, I'm a director at the Mission Critical Team Institute, responsible for operations in Australia and New Zealand. It's a huge honour to be debuting here and bringing you this week's Teamcast. The Teamcast is a show where Dr Preston Klein, Coleman Ruiz, Claire Murphy and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are groups of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. They work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, and the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of Mission Critical Teams and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hope you enjoy the team cast. Uh, today I'll be speaking with uh, Coleman Ruiz. Like me, I know you've all enjoyed listening to Coleman on the Teamcast, uh, as well as through his many public appearances and platforms these many years. But I thought today, and perhaps as a bit of a handshake between us in terms of hosting the Teamcast, we would do a navigation check or, a, or take a breather, reflect on the Teamcast so far. And the Mission Critical Team Institute, for that matter, do somewhat of a debrief or what Coleman might refer to as an after-action review of sorts. I want to ask him about a few of his favourite guests and topics uh, that he and Preston have covered over the past episodes and get a bit more insight into who Coleman is uh, and what he's done through a pretty remarkable career so far. As we know, Coleman is a co-founder, principal and the director of performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. He's a US Naval Academy graduate and former officer in the Naval Special Warfare Community, or the SEALs as we know them. Coleman spent 13 years on active duty in the US Navy, serving overseas during six combat deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq. He served as a troop commander and joint task force commander and led hundreds of operations and dozens of sensitive military programs. He also served in US embassies in Yemen and Kenya. Importantly, though, he had a senior role as a training officer and director of human performance for Naval Special Warfare. He also worked extensively across multiple sports, business and not-for-profit organisations, as well as being a regular lecturer at the US Naval Academy, something I know he's very passionate about. He now lives in Annapolis, where he and his wife Bridget raised their three boys. Today, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. We're going to talk about special operations selection, uh, now and then, the differences, we're going to talk a bit about transition from mission-critical teams coming out of special operations in particular, and for those who move into the public domain and how to do it with dignity. We're going to talk about what lessons can mission-critical teams learn from punk rock, and then ask the question, is Keith Richards elite, and what can we learn from him? We talk about saunas and fasting, or at least the world according to us, training smarter as your age, humour and why you should always have a joke on hand, uh, education and lifelong learning, and we'll uh, touch on our favourite books of all time. And we'll probably finish up with a bit of comment about uh, Preston Klein and ask just how did he throw out the rule book around outsiders being accepted into the inner sanctum of mission-critical teams? How, how did he do it? Welcome to the team cast as a guest, mate. I love it. Thanks, Harry. I'm I'm psyched that uh, I'm on the other side of the table. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think a lot of people would be uh, listening, mate. It's uh, it's great. You know, uh, many people wouldn't know, uh, and we've talked about this that you've had a huge impact on me uh, the, the the first day we met, and we spent a couple of hours together one warm San Diego afternoon, having a couple of beers out the back of. Uh, a uh, what was a firehouse museum or a fire, yep. fire yeah and uh, I think uh, John Dowd and, and Preston and a group of people from the MCTI summit were there and uh, I left that discussion transformed I have to say it sounds uh, sounds uh, strange but I was just about to go in or was going through my transition out of defense force uh, into civilian world and it was just in that moment or a conversation it's like a bit of an inflection point that things change for me it's strange how you train and prepare all these years but it's the short moments and conversations that have the most impact do, do you remember that afternoon I do I don't 
I have zero recollection of what I said, but I do remember specifically. I asked you, how's your transition been or how was it? And referring to this kind of moment in the past. And you said to me, well, I've been out, I think it was maybe six years or, or seven yeah. years, something like that. And you said, uh, it's still going. And at that moment, a penny dropped in a really big way, a profound way. And I went, wow, it's not a it's not a six months or a moment or whatever. It's ongoing and and it really allowed me to give myself permission to take my time and and relax is that is that you know how do you reflect on that time so it was september 2011 for me harry so as we sit here in october of 2020 i'm in year nine and i still feel the same way and every year feels a little bit different in terms of the transition but i do still feel like it's a very 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 long-term process Again, my recollection is that summer was 2017, so it was I was out for six years. But I believe the previous winter, yeah, I was at a commit. Fa- so it would have been the winter of 15. I was at like a big gala in Baltimore for the Commit Foundation. Who we're going to have Amory Craig. I've already interviewed her uh, on the team cast at some point. My wife does a lot of work with the Commit Foundation. They do veterans transition stuff. You know that I'm particularly involved at the station foundation which kind of comes at transition a little bit differently than commit but yep. be that as it may the previous winter i was at the gala for commit and i had a a guy that i'd worked with back in the day i, I was way junior to him i was brand new ensign at seal team three and he was now retiring as an 06 and he came up to me at the just for a chat at the gala and he asked the same question so i think you know when i saw you harry like I guess eight months later, maybe it was top of mind because yeah. I had I had been out four or five years and I kept hearing this question of like people, you know, on the start line of transition. So this this guy at the gala asked me, you know, Coleman, how was transition? And at year five-ish, four and a half, I shared with him the same thought that I'm still in it. He looked at me shocked. Yeah. And and it made me nervous for him because <laughs> I was thinking if he thinks that after whatever, 24 years and a captain in the Navy, that his transition is going to last nine months. I had it with like the biggest bit of humility and compassion for him is he's going to be very surprised. Yeah. You know, if he thinks it's short. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that was the kind of essence of what hit me, what struck me was that, uh, and, and permission to kind of take your time, you know, not be in a rush. And I had this kind of sense that, um, you know, I had my leave, my crude leave at the end and that I was going to use it in this way and that way and that way and I'd be ready. When the door opened and they set me free, you know, and uh, I walked out of the big gates, I'd be ready and it just was not the case. So uh, I, I thank you for that, mate. I, you know, I no, really do. And and it, it is strange. I You know, I talk a lot about uh, just the moments in life that have the greatest impact so it's, it's there's a lot in that story, I think, for for a lot of people who are looking to transition. I use that. It also speaks to the runway that you build yourself uh, leading up to transition. You know, I think uh, we kind of ignore the discussion until you know way way down the track. A lot of people do; they don't think about it till the last moment. So I'd encourage everyone who's who's uh, serving in mission critical teams, in particular, wherever they are. To, to have that discussion with themselves at whatever stage of their career, even if you've only- Well, look, Harry, and, I, and I'm, I, as you know, I've been very open about this. So you just mentioned talk, thinking and talking about transition too late. I mean, too late's not even the word for me. I did yep. nothing. I signed my DD-214, which is our document that closes out your service. Yep. I turned in my badge and my ID card and I walked out of the gate. And the next day, literally the next day, I was walking around Food Lion, the grocery store nearest my house in Virginia <laughs> Beach, when we were still there. Yeah. And I had this moment of like panic and realization that so the same thought induced panic and realization. No one's going to recall me. Like no one's going to call me. And yeah. at first it was like, "Oh, thank goodness. No one's going to call me back to the base like I'm free." And then I realized, "Fuck." no one's going to call me like no one gives a shit about me or my career anymore. Cause it's over. Right. And that was super scary. And this is, I'm also open about this, Harry, for the group. This is U S Naval Academy educated officer in the seal teams at the highest 
peak command that you can be at with all the resources at my disposal. And I was still in like a flat panic. I I found uh, I I had, when I left here in Melbourne, I had, I felt like a bit of a weight lifted off my shoulders. And then about a week later, then I had this sense of loss, I suppose. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but look, let's come back to that because what I'd like to do is over the past number of uh, team casts, we've had a, a flavour and an essence of you and your journey and um, and your career. And this leads nicely. This will lead nicely into what I want to talk about, kind of coming out of special ops and the, and the, the tensions that exist around that. But I'd like to get a, a coherent or or a, or a storyline of you know the origin moment for you or the background that led up to that origin moment where you went I want to be a seal and and then just a you know a brief walk through through your career up until say the deployments we've heard a bit about that but just want to kind of get the background who's behind Coleman Ruiz, the uh, the seal commander. I was just a normal blue collar kid growing up in New Orleans down in southern Louisiana and my dad was a a welder and a pipe fitter. At, he worked in shipyards his whole life. Neither one of my parents graduated from college and my mom was a dental assistant. And we were a normal family of six, I guess, as normal as you can be and low income or maybe middle class back then. I have no idea, you know, what the economics were in the mid seventies or early eighties when I was a little kid. And I just ran around my neighborhood with my cousin, like sprinting up and down the street and playing Olympic athlete in his front yard and all this stuff. And, um, that was at your end. So the, you were, it was athletics. That was your particular. Oh, I mean, I, I just did everything outdoors and I played like Nintendo 64 for a summer and then I put (laughs) it away and never picked it up again. And, uh, I was just really like, and I, and I was like, I don't try to make it sound like I was some ADHD thing I had or whatever. I just ran around crazy with my cousin who lived across the street from me. In like when I was like seven years old, my aunt and uncle brought me to a road race, like a one mile road race, and I won the kids' division. And I was like, I can do this. Whatever this is, like I can do this, you know. And and my dad was a multiple state champion, and, and he didn't finish college, but he went to college. He didn't lose many wrestling matches in his whole career. He was like really well known in the city, and all of his trophies were in the attic in a box. Like I would climb up into the attic and look at his trophies and he was just never into promoting his achievements. And so I went to the same, my high school was like a middle school and a high school. And so I started there when I was in sixth grade and I, my dad never talked about wrestling ever, Harry. And another friend of mine suggested that we go try out for the wrestling team. And I came home and asked my dad, should I try out for wrestling? And he shrugged and said, that's up to you. Like you play whatever sport you want. and. I started wrestling in seventh grade and I never looked back by, by eighth grade, the very next year I was on the vars- the high school varsity team. And, uh, my sophomore year in high school, I was in the state finals. And then my junior and senior year, I had two undefeated seasons. Now, Louisiana is not a big wrestling state, but that's how I ended up at the Naval Academy. And so everything I knew in my life from really from seventh grade to getting recruited to the Naval Academy for wrestling was a function of my high school coach and like the things that we did to train for wrestling, which was, you know, running up and down the levees in New Orleans next to the Mississippi River with weights and carrying logs and carrying each other and running stadiums in the gym until, you know, people threw up in 106 degree Fahrenheit heat. Did you have a sense at that stage of, you know, Navy SEALs or or special ops or anything. So this stage, you're kind of unwittingly almost preparing. I, I was just wild for the physical activity, Harry. I, I and I still yeah. love it now. Like crank up the heat, you know, and, and this is actually, you know, you and I have talked about this. I need to watch for this in myself because it, the more you crank up the intensity, like the more excited I get about it. And, um, and that's dangerous long-term as we know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it was great. And so, I went to actually went to prep school for a year because I couldn't get straight into the Naval Academy and the wrestling coach sent me up to Newport for a year of prep school. And then I went there in 94. I didn't win anything big in college, but I had winning seasons. I was the team captain my senior year, but the the path into special operations and the SEAL teams was my college roommate. I was in uh, SEAL training with him, a guy named Dave. He, he played water polo and he, he knew a lot about the SEAL teams. 
I actually thought I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. And we went down to Quantico, Virginia for this training thing between freshman and sophomore years at the Naval Academy. And I just didn't particularly love like the rigidity of the Marine Corps. I'm more of a free spirit that I think is um, obvious when people meet me. And so when Dave kind of like exposed me to some people he knew that were in the SEAL teams, I just really got excited about it. And I had grown up in New Orleans and I had grown up around the water. And so I spent tons of time in the water in Florida and all these other yeah. things. And so it was that that's interesting, Mike. I'll pull you up there because so so you mentioned I'm interested in what the characteristic was that drew you. So you, you you're saying the rigidity of Marine Corps. I get that. Um, you know, I had a, an army uh, upbringing, so uh, I always imagine the other services are si- uh, similar, but probably a little more relaxed in some instances. But what was the characteristic that you saw in the SEALs that you didn't maybe that, that you didn't see in the Marines, or what was? Yeah, it's funny. You and I were talking before we started recording, like the humor, which is not that there isn't humor in the Marine Corps, but the guys in the SEAL teams were just more, as I mentioned, like free spirits. I'll just use a very simple example. When an obstacle course or an endurance course or some long like FTX or a, a, a force march, the guys I met and, exp- and, and look, one of my very best friends and wrestling teammates who was killed in 2007, like the best leader I've ever been around in my life, Doug Zembeck, he was in the Marine Corps. So I'm not taking a shot at the Marines here. It was just like they got more and more serious and more, it's almost like the focus was so intense. Yep. I couldn't see the humanity behind the people. Yep. And when things got crazy intense for guys in the SEAL teams, they just thought it was funny. Yeah. And, and I love that because, I don't know, I just enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I, that, that resonates with me too. I think there's there's a, a difference in ca- capability and their roles and tasks that require probably the different ends of a spectrum or the different parts of a spectrum. And I, I think that's what really appealed to me, this notion um, when uh, when I first sparked onto special ops or to the SAS, the British SAS for me, was this sense of of daring and adventure and you know this capacity that maybe your inner creativity whatever that was at that time that you you kind of sensed you might have had would have uh, an outlet there whereas it would be quite constrained in the in the normal military i think it's a great discussion and, and it's something that goes to who we and why we select people in those those environments um just before i can't let you go so you mentioned the best leader that you've ever uh, worked under just a couple of reasons why that or, or a brief comment on, on why that why that was before we move on. You can look up, anybody listening can look up Doug Zembeck and many listeners, they'll know who he is. Doug was a senior on the wrestling team when I actually met him in high school when I came from my recruiting visit. He was a senior on the wrestling team by the time I got there as a freshman and we were the same weight class. And Harry, all the people you and I know and all the people we've been around, the most physically and mentally tough human that I've ever met to date. Yeah. Like bar none. And he had this respect for the institution and he was in the Marine Corps and, and for what we did, all of, all of us, what we all did, like generally what our jobs were, he just had a tremendous respect for our role overseas as leaders and teammates to each other's. But he had this authoritarian irreverence blended with it. And it was like, you don't get to tell me, you have to show me. So not only was the most physically and mentally tough dude I've ever met, he was the first human because of the way I came up and just the way men are in general. And I experienced this no less like at the U.S. Naval Academy around other guys who are real guys, guys. Doug was the first person as a college kid to like hug you, tell you in front of everybody how much he loved you, tell you how much he respected and admired what you just did. And like, he would go on these diatribes, Harry, by like, he would just be pouring on the respect, the appreciation, the acknowledgement to people in these open forums. Like he used to do this thing later when we were all in the Navy and Marine Corps, he was living in Virginia beach, which is where he met Pam, his surviving spouse and his daughter Fallon now his teenager. And in the middle of like hanging out at the bar, he would jump up, physically jump up on the bar and do this thing called the billionaire speech. And, <laughs> and he would start like screaming about how he's a billionaire. And guys who didn't know him that well were like, 
did Doug come into family money or something? <laughs> and then he starts pointing at everybody, Harry, you're worth a billion dollars to me. You're worth a billion dollars to me. My friends, his arms are up in the sky and his head's back and he's on a bar in a public place yelling, my friends make me a billionaire. They make me a billionaire. And he was just crazy. Like he climbed the flagpole on the 4th of July at Quantico, Virginia, when he was in the basic school or when he was in the infantry officer's course, one of the two, I can't remember. He climbed the flagpole to make sure he could hold the flag out like at full like extent because yeah, the wind wasn't blowing enough you know? <laughs> but he, he sounds like he'd make a bloody good australian just quietly it's oh, uh, he's the best i know that you've got uh I've, I've listened to some of the commentary you've got on uh, youtube or online and look at a whole raft of other things that you've you've um put online and in in tribute so i'd encourage everyone to uh to to take a look and we'll, we'll put that in the show notes is that right but anyway, we're we're at we're running up and down the culvert with uh, weights, and we're you're inspired to go into the seals. You've met this, yeah. So the way it happened, just really quickly for us, is at you know back then, twenty two, twenty three years ago at the Naval Academy, there were only sixteen slots for going from service academy into the SEAL teams, and so about one hundred and fifty kids showed up on this weekend screener, and they ran us around for thirty six hours, and then. I got a spot out at the mini buds thing, which is a week long out in Coronado. That was between junior and senior year. And then that was it. Like fortunate enough to get picked up for one of the 16 slots and showed up to buds in uh, September of 98. Something that intrigues a lot of people, um, particularly for the the us down under here um just give us a little bit of an insight in into buds and what i think the thing that kind of captures people's imagination the most is this uh, the pool events with uh, hands tied feet tied porpoising and and uh just talk us through give us some some of the the, the activities that are happening in around that it's funny you picked that one harry because as a wrestler i was i was i don't know what i am nowadays but i was high muscularity low body fat then Okay. And so I couldn't float very well. <laughs> and the event you just mentioned, the hands and feet tied, I'll talk about the pool in general just for people's edification, but that's the drown proofing test, that's which right. I'm happy to describe. I failed yeah. it three times. And if you fail something three times, any event, a run, an ocean swim, something in the pool, not tying, you name it. If Because I went back as an instructor, as you mentioned, if you fail an event three times, you're supposed to get rolled back. Right. And I learned a very important lesson in first phase after I failed my drown proofing test a third time. I had been, I guess, doing well enough. And one of the really, really senior instructors, he sent everybody away. He said, get the class out of here and all you instructors go away and everybody else leave. I'm going to have a conversation with Ensign Ruiz about his performance. And I thought I was getting rolled back. And you know what he did, Harry, was... He rewarded me for my effort in other places. Like he let me take that drown proofing test like eight more times wow. until I wow. passed. And I've never forgotten that in this sense is like, and this is what I mean by like a lot of the leadership conversations that you and I have. So I guess I thought when I came into the Navy for real, I wasn't at the Naval Academy. It was going to be, you know, well, you get three shots and that's it. You know, you got to follow the rules or it's not fair to everybody else. It's just not true. You know, like if people are doing a good job in other places and they're struggling in one thing, they don't need a second chance or a third chance. They might need 10 chances, but we have to stay with them, you know, and that instructor stayed with me. And after that moment, I would have ran through a brick wall. I would have taken a bullet for him. Yeah. I, I love that, mate. That's, uh, and it's so poignant in, at the moment around, yeah, you know, the changing nature of selection. It's un. It's it, you could argue it's kind of under challenge, not in a not in a pejorative way, but a, but in a in a I suppose a, a growth kind of way, training our instructors so they become intuitive enough, I guess, or try to grow whatever intuitive is. You know, it's a it's a slippery concept in itself. But yeah, you know, looking a bit deeper than just the metrics and the push ups yeah. and the chin ups, they are important. We need to carry weight. We need to be able to carry things and 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 
quit our job and, and make great decisions as well. But there are character, deeper character elements that I'm sure that person saw in you and went, no, there's just something to this kid or this this individual that yeah. that we need to persist. It's worth us investing the time in. And I, I say, I find I say this in businesses a lot where it's quite cutthroat, they're not meeting the mark. And you say, I, I don't know that this person, are they being given the best chance to to succeed? You know, or are they being just so brutally um, compartmentalized or, or or treated that they can't perform? They're smothered and they're, they're, they're you know. So I, I, I love that. So while we're on uh, selection, what what year are you going through this process? This is uh, I went through Hell Week in September of '98. All right, so last century. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad you snuck in because mine was way last century. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of turn left here a little and and just maybe talk about selection now and then because I, I understand um, through the work we do down here with say tactical police and even the emergency medicine out here in Melbourne, um, there is this tension between the way we always did it. And then the way we probably need to do it now, or the or the vector in which we need to start moving along to, to, towards changing our our practices, how we treat people, how we select people, how we train, etc. And um, it's something that's kind of fascinating to me. Did, is do you see that now? Is it was it a different beast then than what you observe now, or or how have the seals kind of tracked over the last twenty years? Yes and no, and I think that's a good thing, Harry. I mean, one of the things I think. We all need to be doing a better job of now, and that that literally includes all of us in mission critical teams. And this is a question I think we were doing below average at back in 2005 when I went back as an instructor. Hmm. Is and most people are doing a much better job at this now, but it's a it's a provocative thought. Is and I know bureaucracy gets in the way, and you can't change things every two to three years. I get that, but just bear with me here. Is on all of our teams. Are we really doing the best job we can at, at the, before we let our biases of, well, we have to do drown proofing and we have to do this and we have to do that. Just forget the events for a second. Yep. And let's answer, what does the race car need to do on the track? Like if the person is the race car, what's the environment it needs to operate in? And what does that race car need to look like? Yep. And do we have the courage to backwards select, you know, for lack of a better description for that race car? Because the truth is, is like what the race car, the operator was doing, what we were all doing in Bakuba and Kandahar and Ramadi and Jalalabad and wherever in 2007 through say, or 2004 through 2012, that is very different than what the race car is doing now. Yeah. Now, do we need a standard, like as we all talk about at MCTI and Preston always beats this drum is what's the floor? Like there is a floor as you and I both know and agree, Harry, like there's some level of standard that never really changes for the yeah. type of operators that we need. But I think we need to make sure we're having the conversation about, are we matching selection to the current operating environment? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's spot on, mate. And, uh, it's difficult to know what the future is going to bring or what we need in the future, but I think there's a, a I, I, find, I see that in selection processes here in Australia that we, we're kind of anchored to tradition and I certainly would be the last person with my cricket love of cricket in particular to throw out tradition and and what uh, what's built it. But the science kind of has, has shown us a better way. I must say, I, you know, my, the turning point for me was probably, you know, 2013 or 14, I came came across for a soft concentration down at Bragg, and I saw what was going out on out in the world outside of our sphere, and and that was really switched on a light for me. It's around the same time I met Preston, and and a whole world of you know, wow. The question is, why are you doing that, and what purpose does it continue to to serve? And the answer is, at for my mind at this point in my life, is well, the most of it's really good, and it's appropriate. But yeah. there are a whole bunch of better ways. And one, one of the interesting areas, and we won't go into it now, but it's um, I, I want to maybe explore over over a few team casts in the future is, you know, at the instructor level, how are we preparing them to to see past you know, the metrics and their biases to look for that what 
that instructor saw in you and your third attempt in the in the drown proofing exercise. So we can we can make sure we get you know uh, optimal you know optimal people and and uh, and continue that you know the excellent standards that we we set for each other. And the funny random one that you can't really necessarily always prepare for, Harry, is one thing about that particular instructor is he was so senior. He was an LDO. He had been enlisted forever. Yep. And then he became an officer, right? And so he was unfireable. Right. So, but, it, but it's an important message, right? It's like, maybe not the reason, but one of the reasons he was able to do that is because his courage was like, it was in a way it was built in because he was unfireable. Yeah, in a it. way, this sounds weird. He needed less courage to do that than say yeah. a junior instructor would have been, had to have been highly courageous to take that action. Yeah. So again, Spot it was on. a note for me as a young as a young officer when I checked into Team Three. I realized, well, I'm definitely fireable, yeah. and so when things happen and I want to go outside the the rules of the game, mm. I'm going to have to really, you know, have my courage stuck to the sticking plate, sort of, you know, sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, mate. It's a it's a, a great discussion, and um, I think uh, I, I'm really fascinated by how selection and and, uh, and 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 how we treat this. And there's something right at the core of the heart for the for the Mission Critical Team Institute, um, which uh, which is doing some uh, fantastic work. So. We've talked about selection. We've got a, a, a flavour of the back, your background, where you came in, merging out of literally out of the waters of of wrestling and through the the SEAL teams. You know, you've had a, a long and distinguished career in the SEAL teams, and then you transition out. I wouldn't mind turning now, if you don't mind, just to fast forwarding through to the end of your career, probably predating our discussion in San Diego. You've had a public profile for a little while now. You've done a lot of public speaking, a lot of lecturing. Um, you, you know, you've worked in the private sector, and that's that, that's kind of by the by. But for operators who do have a penchant for coming out and doing things more publicly, social media kind of um, sets the precedent for that. How have you got any advice or any thoughts on on how to do that? Optimally, there's a lot of tension, especially coming out of the special operations community. Have you got any thoughts or, or, or advice? Or, Well, I, I'll just speak honestly. Like, I don't want to yeah. put anybody on or put anybody off, but I'll say, you know, first of all, there's people who have had way longer and more distinguished careers than I did. A lot of this type of thing, Harry, like the little bit in the public as compared to other people. And then I'll, I'll get to my thoughts and recommendations on, you know, public profile, but has all been accidental. And let me just like, so the whole, our whole community knows the reason I'm like willing to give speeches or do a presentation here or do this is the thing is, is like, I just really like the camaraderie of well-intentioned people trying to do something great in their environment, whether it's business or athletics or us or whatever, you know, us meaning MCTI or former military guys. And when I meet and see people in any environment, you know, I met some business guys who wanted to do like a leadership offsite in here in Annapolis. And so I set one up because I really liked the business people. You know, I wasn't trying to build some leadership academy, you know, it was. And so that's really all that to say the forums and that I end up in, I really only, I don't do any lead generation. I have no speaking agent. Speaking's not really even that important to me, honestly. It's just if if somebody I really like and I'm and and I'm really cl have come close to them for whatever reasons they'll recommend me to somebody else and typically mm -hmm. I tell that somebody else or that other group it's very likely I'm not the right person for you for whatever business engagement you're talking about or keynote or whatever because if you're looking for like a very formal show pony up on the stage like I'm not your guy and that's worked out well for me, Harry. Like I, I'm not hyper out there in front and I get to pick and choose what I do. And I haven't, I mean, to be really honest, like I haven't built my private sector life around that paying the bills for my family. It's just extra. And so I've been able to take a much more deliberate approach to the public facing stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think you've done it really well, mate. And I, I, what I hear is it's, been organic and it's about um you know, you know kind of being working with 
teams and people who are trying to do th- good things. I think that's a great premise from which to, to do it. And it, there is a tension. I get the question a lot about kind of coming out. It sounds a bit strange, and I'm sorry to pinch a, a nerve of, yeah. uh, a, another term, but uh, if that sounds clumsy, but there is that tension that you kind of hand in your pass, walk away, and never speak again. And I know in SASR, some of the older guys used to sit around the house with drinking beer. We've got a, a pub up at uh, on the barracks called The House, and uh, it's a place where a lot of the old guys go. And a lot of them, a lot of the old guys talk about, you know, where's John, where's Rod, where's whoever, and they turn into kind of letterboxes at the end of the road and they, they just withdraw. And it's a great pity because I think there's so much more of people from mission critical teams to give after their service if they do 10 or 15 or 20 years particularly these days you're looking after yourself you can go on and have another 10 or 15 years of real impact and I think there's always a tension so a lot of I think a a big swathe of the community probably feel I'll just go away shut up maybe go to a training institution but I'll just be this you know, narrow human and and when really they've got so much more to give. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should rush out and become, you know, a, a YouTube hit or anything like that, but I think they should take a little bit of confidence in moving out into the public profile and yep. you'll be overwhelmed, but, you know, I'm not saying that you should be, but they should seek out mentors that are already out there, made the mistakes yeah. and have a good conversation because I think it's going to be impossible going forward. It's, um, it's something that I, I turn my mind to a lot. Um, and I got I got a good advice on this too, Harry, which was another good friend of mine who was just out around the same time, uh, out of the military, just like, a, you know, a little bit in the public wasn't his thing, but I called him and asked him and he said, Coleman, like, there's two things I want you, uh, you know, since you called me, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And one is, are there any books that you read or you really liked, you know, that other people who are in the military, he's like, their friends, when they wrote those books they were probably looking at them with a little bit of a sideways eyeball, you know, and some of those books are Leon Uris's battle cry, like E.B. Sledge from World War II with the old breed. (laughs) They are books about John Ripley, the bridge at Dong Ha. They're books written by, you know, all sorts of Vietnam, World War II, Persian Gulf, like all the things that we love, Harry, as in like probably a lot of the same books that we all read. Those guys had to make that decision at some point too. And that was, so he made that point, and then he and then he said, "Well, Coleman, if you don't talk about stuff publicly in a way that works for you, then the frauds will. Mm. There's going to be people out there just blabbering on and on, and we know who they are. And maybe mm. people think that's what I do. I don't know, but what what I know we all try to do who are doing this, quote unquote, correctly is, I mean, rule number one is you obviously keep it unclassified." Yep. Rule number two is you sit down and think about not, you know, what you want to, what you feel like you want or should say. What I would encourage people to do is reflect on what you learned and just share what you learned from other people and on your journey. And that is, I mean, when I was younger, I was desperate to hear what the more experienced great guys point. learned. It's a great point. That is a, a such a, a powerful point because I mentor young fellas and, and women now, uh, which is great, uh, uh, coming through and asking, you know, what is it? What did you learn? What am I What am I looking out for? You know, et cetera. Yeah, that's a And that's this a one, really Harry, sorry to cut you off, but uh, like, if uh, you want to keep pulling this thread, there was a bunch of guys, obviously, we all met at our units. You know how many people told me, like sat me down and said, Coleman, as a troop commander at this unit, the first time your unit is like in a full-blown firefight, mm. this is what it's going to be like. Nobody told me down and like shared that with me, Harry. Yeah. I was like, there isn't anybody here who's willing to just say like, dude, the shit gets crazy. <laughs> you know, and at what we do is we train well and we do a great job at preparing. And then we don't want to like, we don't want to, you know, tell somebody else how it is because it's looked on like, what the fuck does Coleman think he knows? Like, yeah. no, no, I could have used one other guy who would have like helped me out a little bit more. Yeah. I, I, I would add principle that I've learned myself over this, this last really only 18 months since I, since I finished up, but, um, is that does it make the train move smoother? And I think the train moves on. So the regiment, in my 
my world, my mission critical community, that train rolls. You know, you, yeah. you occasionally go to the rehab caboose up the back and then move forward again if when you're on it. But when you get off it, it's gone and it, it's rolling on. And I think um, if you can contribute to in what you're doing, if you're contributing in a really po- in a positive way, and it's making that train better, I think that's a frame of mind from which I've tried to to come from. You know, I think um, it's because it's the unit and the military. Do they owe you anything? I don't know. I'm kind of still working that out, but I feel like I want to give back. There's this yeah. thing in me that wants to give back, whatever that is. So you want to make sure. That's positive. That's something, mate. It's central to the mission critical team institute mission. You know the yes. survivability and sustainability of, of of mission critical teams. All of what we've kind of covered so far is a, is a broad blanket. It's so so broad and so deep. I, I just want to kind of take pause. I mentioned in the intro that we we might um, you know uh, reflect on the Mission Critical Team and the Institute, uh, the work it's doing. So if I just give you a moment to kind of think about that and, and you know, what are some of the, the things, what, what drew you to the Mission Critical Team Institute, I guess, is a good place to start it. Well, the, fir- the first was my first phone call with Preston. I was sitting in my pickup truck in Virginia Beach in the parking lot of my last unit. I don't know why I took the call there, but we had set it up and I was going to be out like getting my DD-214 in the next, I don't know, month or two. And a buddy of ours, Tom, who I've known since prep school, did a full career in the SEAL teams, enlisted to warrant officer. And um, I just called Preston and we were having a chat. We introduced ourselves to each other. And I just asked him, like, what, why did Tom introduce us? And he talked about his background and his research. And I had just in, in 08. So in 05, I was a buds instructor at the basic level. And then in 08, I was advanced training instructor in Virginia Beach. And so I, it was three years later. And Preston's going on and on about describing tacit knowledge transfer and what happens when you're an operator and you go into the training house. And I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck this guy's talking about. And then, buddy, he, he described it so well. And so interestingly, in terms of shared language and we all bring our own experiences back into the training environment, but it's not necessarily the best way to standardize and scale the training effectively. And it's highly dependent on, you know, that operator's experience and all the things we discuss at our summits and other places. And I thought like, well, I remember asking him, Harry, I said, wait, have you written any of this shit down? And he's like, yeah, I have a, I have all kinds of stuff. And he sent me some stuff to read. And then I called them back and I was like, why don't we have this? in our training units just as a manual or, or just a bit of education so we can reflect. And then when this mutual friend, Tom invited me to the summit in 2012, my head exploded (laughs) and that was it. And, and that set about uh, a chain of events that um, led to, I suppose, the broad, I suppose, Mission critical teams was something that Preston's was still is you know deeply passionate about, and uh, I I am gladly in uh, co infectious about it as well. I think it's um, a very meaningful work, and so fast forward, mate, I think um, the the mission critical team train rolls on, and and long may it a new addition to it. So yeah, you know, we the, the, to the summits and the workshops and the instructor focus kind of education journey that um that that we're all on and assisting that i love the where, where did the team cast come from i love that initiative uh, mm. and it's it's gone grown popular quickly uh yeah I, I th- for the for all the right reasons i think it's fantastic where where did that come from it's so true harry i've actually got like three emails in my inbox this week from random people not not random people like guys just like us, but people that I don't personally know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's new. You know, they yep. picked up the team cast from places, but it was a uh, quarantine and COVID. So it was actually twofold. I had been thinking about it over the last, say, six months to eight months simply because I often will sit down with somebody inside the traditional MCT community or outside of it. And I'm talking to him and I'm like 35 minutes into the conversation thinking I should be recording this. Yeah. Okay. And every once in a while, I'll pull out my phone and ask the person, cause they're a close friend normally, should we record this? 
Like this is, this is an interesting conversation. And so we went into quarantine in March and we canceled a bunch of courses, unfortunately, um, because of quarantine. Yep. And a few people reached out to Preston and said, what's the best way for us to engage with the material? Because, yep. you know, most people have seen much of the material. So I just, I just presented it to Preston and asked him, what do you think about recording some material? Me and you talking, mostly me interviewing you, Preston, on your research so you can slow down and think about it and people can go back and listen, you know? And so then we realized, well, it probably shouldn't just be me and Preston talking and the Rolodex, the mission critical team Rolodex is insane. And yeah. so we just started going through it and here we are in, you know, late October my thinking was we just we just do a series of episodes through the end of the year, but I guess we'll just keep going for now. Yeah, absolutely, and, and there's great appetite for it here and growing. Um, I, I know you've got some amazing guests coming up soon, so uh, I'm, I'm you know personally, even though I'm uh, I'm privileged to be involved in it, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's absolutely without a doubt. Um, hand on heart, my favourite podcast that I listen to. Oh, thanks. And uh, no, it is good, mate. And I think uh, it really gets to uh, the operator's voice. So that obviously resonates with me and yeah. and 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 our community. So, what about a couple of guests? Can I start? I'll, and I'll start you off so you don't have to feel like Go you've got to pick it. favourites or something. But my favourite episodes, the Huberman, Andrew Huberman, Andy Huberman's yeah. uh, episode, it ordered a few things to me as a psychologist and as a, I suppose, you know, ex-military athlete of some some level at some level what are a few of the highlights so far in the team cast for you personally i was actually on the phone with andrew this morning on on something separate he he just became a great friend by by luck you know introduction to introduction i mean An andrew's thinking he's around my age we chat about all kinds of stuff i i thought that was an amazing episode i mean everybody was great right jimmy hatch is a great friend of mine I freaking love Jimmy. And so I really enjoyed that conversation personally Yep, because I got to share some stuff with Jimmy that I didn't never had shared with him, you know? Yeah. Yep. And he's in a place where he can handle it. He doesn't care if you ambush really him with a comment. Yeah. Very powerful. And I mean, Claire's amazing. We, we all love Claire because she brings something so different to the team. Dan Coyle episode. I really, really appreciate it because everybody's different. You know, Dan is a very, it clearly experienced like researcher and author. And so his, his, his clarity of conversation is super crisp. Yeah. And I think that's important, you know, and that was different sometimes like you and I are just babbling along and hopefully people are staying with us here, but Dan's very crisp. <laughs> I found that that was well received by a couple of coaches, assistant coaches and coaches. Oh, good. Yeah. So I think that was really helpful and talking more around that kind of team environment. And here, here's an interesting one for you, Harry. I, not surprised because I absolutely love being around Trey Free. Yep. A couple of people called me afterwards and said that was their favorite episode with Trey. Great. Yeah. It's, Maybe it's the selection thing, you know, Trey's just, he's unbelievable, you know, so that was great. They've all been fun. Yeah, and it's as I said, mate. It's a real credit, and as a great privilege to uh, hopefully uh, carrying the flame. Okay, up till now, we'll, we'll we'll improve as we go. Two things, if I can turn now, as we kind of round the boy or buoy, as you guys might call it, and head towards home. Another area you've, you've impacted me, not through the team cast, uh, you know, and, and the transition, etc., but uh, in fact in my daily habits and, you know, you amongst a few people, uh, I, I try to um, absorb as much as I can about training and I still train, you know, four or five times a week and I like to think I train as hard as I, uh, smarter and as hard as I, I ever have or, or as at least, you know, 80% there, I guess, with getting older. But two things that I was always interested in, I've always been a bit of a faster. Uh, it's it's something about the attention and the clarity of mind that it gives me. Not everybody's the same. We all have individual differences, and I've always enjoyed saunas. And I would I would yeah. say that I enjoyed saunas once a fortnight, maybe twice a week if there was one on a barracks that I was at or whatever. But when you shared with me the link to Rhonda Patrick. I did some reading and and it kind of set my mind on fire and I've been 
just in the sauna. I mean, I miss the sauna the most at the moment yeah. in lockdown in Melbourne. That, that's the single thing I miss the most, and which is a first world problem. The gym thing I can kind of work around, but it's kind of changed the way I've approached my training, my mindset as I get older, and I feel better. I feel stronger, less injurious if that's, you know, I don't suffer as much with injury. Mate, do you want to talk to one or both of those things? I know you're a passionate uh, guy about saunas. Do you want to give it a plug? Cause it's such an untapped thing, I think, in our community. I- Here's the funny thing, Harry. This is all because of wrestling. Right. I hated fasting and I hated saunas because all I did was starve myself to make weight Yep. and, and ride bicycles and jump rope in saunas until – you know, I was nearly about to pass out because I hadn't eaten for three days, all trying to make weight. And so a very, very close friend of mine from high school, a guy I met when I was 12 years old, we still, we text every day and we talk four out of seven days a week. And he was up to see us, to see Bridget and I, because he still lives down in Louisiana. I don't know, 2014, 15-ish. And he had just spent a lot more time in the sauna just for his own health. And, and he just liked the way it felt, you know? And yep. so I was like, I hate saunas, man. That's stupid. And then <laughs> you've he, got one at home now, haven't you? <laughs> I got one at home now. And so you and I have talked endlessly, Harry, about transition. And, you know, I got out in 2011. And by 2015, 16, I was in the worst shape of my life, feeling as physically, emotionally, and mentally spent as I had ever felt in my life. I just was not in a good place. And so, I'm like, well, I really trust this high school buddy of mine. Well, now adult buddy of mine, but we met when we were younger. And I went down to the local gym and sat in the steam room for like 20 minutes and then sat in the sauna for 20 minutes, whatnot. And I was like, hmm, that felt pretty good. Mainly the steam room because I just love the smell of like the eucalyptus and it yeah. just really felt good. Yeah. And suddenly I'm doing less and less steam and more and more sauna. And then... I did some research on it, which, you know, you shared here, which is, which I think is really important. And when I discovered not only just how I felt sitting there, but the real health benefits, yep. um, I'll tell you, Harry, like there's a lot of things involved with this, but I was about to go to the doctor for knee pain. I thought I was going to have my knee operated on. I couldn't, when I got out of a chair, both of my hips and my left knee felt like I needed to go see the doctor. Sound, and, sounded like you were opening a bag of crisps, you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. And, and this is now, well, obviously it's four years now and I don't think the sauna is the only thing, but yeah. all my knee pain is gone. All my hip pain is gone. And I think that has something to do with it. You know, does anyway, I think it's a collection, it's complex. And, and I should say, while we're being self-indulgent here about saunas and, and, and yeah. fasting that they, they, they form a, a part of a complex array you know, approach to, yeah. to training and health and and uh, whatnot, and that everyone uh, listening should not rush off and start going to saunas every day and fasting. They should you should go and speak to someone who who you trust, a doctor or or a qualified person to talk about it. And because saunas are not for everyone, depending on your individual kind of biology, and certainly fasting something you need to kind of move with caution. But I would encourage everybody to to go and explore that. I think uh, the next chance I get or the next house we we buy after we move from Melbourne, there'll be definitely be a sauna. I, I agree with you, mate. I, one of the best bit of advice I got way back that started me on fasting was, and I'm not an extreme faster. It's just uh, yeah, it's, it's intermittent. And uh, but Big Duke, I've brought him up before with you yeah. in previous conversations. Planted a seed. He'd been out for a long time, and he just said, "Oh, you know, you don't you don't need to be a crayfish in the gym. You don't need to put have all this weight. You know, drop some weight, yeah. and it'll relieve." And you know, I used to fight at about eighty five ish, you know, and now I fight at maybe late seventies ish, and just so I kind of let go of my ego and dropped a bunch of weight and and didn't focus on. And I've got to say, my back and knees and hips were responded so well to just a little bit of less upper body weight. You know, I'm no Hollywood star anymore. But uh, that's by the by, and I think the program that I would normally run with training, sauna, pools, part of that as well. When it can get yeah. personally, I really would encourage all operators of all mission critical teams just to be allow themselves to be a bit more sophisticated in how they think about preparing yeah. themselves and. And it's okay to use big words and and read research, uh, and it's a pathway to lifelong learning, mate. Which is one of the last things I want to talk to you about. Um, we're on this journey of learning about ourselves and saunas and etc. Uh, I know it's a big 
a big part of your life and you consume books at a, at a, at a high rate. Can I first kick off a, a, just a finishing discussion around lifelong learning and what some of your favourite books and uh, or what are you reading now and a bit about your reading habits? Yeah, for sure, Harry. The Before we do that, I just want to piggyback on a comment you just made about just a lifelong learning, but something I think, and this is targeted to the operators who are still active duty, and of course, you guys know me, I'm not telling you what to do. It's just a look back and a reflection on some of the language that we use in the in the really high elite units. And we talk about being the best and being elite and doing this and being at the tip of the spear and blah, blah, blah. We all we have all the fancy words. And every once in a while, you know, in a in a casual conversation, I'm reflecting on when I was still in. You know, you'd be saying something that we learned that was new and clearly would enhance the mission set and make the train run a little smoother, as you would say, Harry, or whatever. And oftentimes what you would hear from somebody is, oh, we don't do any of that shit. That's stupid. It's like, mm. We don't do any of that shit that's stupid. It's mutually exclusive from the idea of being elite and the best in the tip of the spear. So uh, that should never be our answer to something that is potentially mission enhancing. We don't do any of that shit that's stupid. And when I think back, and I've said that too, a hundred times about different things. And whoever's in a tier one special mission unit, your answer to anything new or interesting or something that's mission enhancing isn't necessarily accept it and take it at face value. It's we'll take it into consideration. We'll do a little investigation when we have the time and it's appropriate, but we don't do that shit. It's stupid is not the right answer. Yeah. We want to promote curiosity, I guess is, is what I hear when you, when you, when you're saying that. Yeah. What, uh, what are you reading at the moment, mate? Um, I'm always interested in what you're, uh, what you've, you always seem to be a couple of books ahead of everyone else. Yeah. My piles of books are everywhere, Harry, so I'm going to look around as I speak here. So (laughs) I am reading a book called The Immortality Key. For those who heard Joe Rogan interview a guy named Brian Murarescu and Graham Hancock, he talks about the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name. I'm reading a book called The Untethered Soul, The Journey Beyond Yourself by Michael Singer. So how, how, what, what's your habits like? Do you, do you kind of just order all these books and then kind of flick through them and, and read them all yes. at the same time and make, I know you make, um, make uh, notes too, Dave. I do that. And, 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 yeah, yeah. So know. this pile over here, Harry, I know you can't see it, but I'm going to read it to the group. I mean, they're all good reads while you're still in. I don't know if I would have read all these when I was in, but people have heard the concept flow, but not everybody's read the original book flow. Okay which is written by, I certainly hadn't read it. And I was talking about flow all the time. I didn't even know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> it's written by a guy named uh, Mihai. This is actually what his last name, uh, how, it's, how it's pronounced. Chick sent Mihai. So if you put in flow and M-I-H-A-L-Y, Mihai is his first name, professor at the University of Chicago. He wrote flow. I think everybody should read a book called Descartes' Error by yeah. Antonio Damasio. A stretch book, but very good book, is a book called Other Minds. It's essentially about the evolution of our nervous system, written by uh, Peter Godfrey Smith. Two of my all-time favorites are Spark, um, the revolutionary science of exercise in the brain, and then a final one, Harry. You said not a final one, one. actually. It was in the notes of maybe the very first team cast or or one. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I read that a long time ago. And then um, let me just mention a few others here. The Body Keeps the Score, which people have heard me talk about in the past by Bessel van der Kolk, and two books that I never would have picked up when I was still in active duty that I think are just absolutely fascinating are The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell and The Rites of Passage by Arnold van Gennep, written in 1908. I have a shit pile of books on my shelf here, but yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get all of those in the uh, in the show notes, mate. I, I don't think I don't think you can have too many uh, or aspire to read too many books. And uh, I like that there's a you know I think it might be Nassim Taleb that um, uh, either borrowed it from someone or makes the point that um, it's okay to have a whole bunch of books, 
that you haven't read around oh, you. Yeah. That that's okay because uh, you're probably more likely to read them if you, than if you do. You, who wants to have a library full of books you've read? Type of thing. I, I, I you know you always want to keep your books, but but I think uh, it's a great notion. And reading, particularly in in this day and age, we 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 have no idea what's going on in our minds and how that all works and how we translate a bunch of scrambled abstract things in our head to a language. It's just a, a phenomena, a miracle almost of, of of we don't understand yet. But I think reading and writing and talking, you know, those that combination, get improving all of that just uh, improves your decision-making. And I'm convinced yeah. of that. And I think there's, there's a lot of great research. I mean, the one, you know, for this audience that I would be remiss if I didn't just made another comment about Harry that we've talked about before. And it's almost, I've observed this in the last like two years, people are almost like putting it off as too simple. And I think it's because it's being referenced more and more and more and more. And people are like, ah, uh, let's, let's read something different except for system one, system two thinking. But yeah, when I first read thinking fast, yeah. Thinking fast and slow. I was, I wanted to say the undoing project because Michael that Lewis, that's my favorite book, the undoing project, two, two psychologists, two SF dudes, you know, one Amazing. on selection, one in a team and the bromance, you know, we've all yeah. got bestie and you know, I love phenomenal. it. I love it, mate. But, it's my uh, favorite book straight up. But thinking fast and slow when I was still when I was still in troop command, I read that book and the, just the simple idea, Harry, that my natural intuitions may not be accurate. Yep. scared the shit out of me. I'm signed. And it was the first time I had ever read or anyone had ever said, "Look, Holman, like your natural human tendencies to do a thing are not what you think they are." Yeah. And I was like, "Wait a minute." then are we mitigating for these? Like, do we train for these? Do we know how to prevent these? And that really kicked off, you know, reading Gary Klein's work and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Oh, I had a similar thing with uh, thinking fast and slow, uh, Daniel Kahneman and, you know, and, and a lot of the work that he and Amos Tversky did together. I had the same thing. It's, it's a book uh, still sitting by the bed. It's, um, uh, got lots of notes and and bits and pieces and yellow yellow post-it notes hanging out of it, but it's a book that you can just pick up when you feel like a hard mind session or a hard yeah. cognitive gym session with a book. Open it anywhere and read you know a hundred pages or even fifty pages and be challenged and have to reread parts. And I I love that kind of thing. It's not something you can do all the time because I, I want to enjoy reading as well. But uh, I find the same, and it's a you know it's a, a book you either love or hate, the same with Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragility. That really challenges me and throws some questionable things around. You know, you kind of find you're challenging. Well, that sounds like bullshit, but hold on, wow, that's really powerful. And um, so I, I think they're, they're two books I, I kind of go to. Hey, I can't go let you go without asking, what about, what are you listening to at the moment? Yeah, I'm listening to a lot of like Lakota Indian chants. Is that, wow. What's In in the sauna for like- oh, is that right? Right, quiet, Coleman quiet time sessions for lack of a better- I found myself in the sauna piling podcast on top of podcast on top of podcast. And I started to think, I think I'm ruining my quiet time in the sauna yeah. with the other input, you know? And so it's funny for me to say this, but I, I think I, I've kind of almost hit a limit on my consumption of information patterns as they were the last, call it like six to nine months. And so when I go in the when I go in the sauna now, I just play a bunch of like Lakota Native Amer Native American chant and like war cry type stuff. Nothing extreme, but it helps you think. Yeah, just relax and and let the let the um, tempo of the music just fill the space instead of somebody else's voice telling me something. Well, I might try that out myself. What I really like about um, the sauna is just that uh, sense of just nothingness. And yeah. I've always been a pacer. Uh, this is kind of a little known fact. I like to spend uh, some nights maybe with a beer or a cup of tea or whatever and just pace up and down the garden. I used to have a cricket pitch in the in the house. We had uh, a backyard cricket pitch and I'd pace up and down. And I think there's something in deep contemplative thinking where you just let 
thoughts, thoughts come and go, and it's where you have those epiphanies. Where I was going with the music is, I'll, we'll have to get you back into some rock music, mate. I've got to get yeah. some uh, <laughs> some externals over there. And, uh, I'm curious. Maybe we can pick it up next time. We we didn't quite get to it today, but I wanted to talk about lessons we can learn from punk rock music uh, oh, as, as teams. You know, I've I've existed in this team of four or five musicians, and when you go up onto the stage, it's like a workshop. You know, I've always and I love it, and and there's a real passion and that kind of hugging and compassion and love for each other when you play yeah. and but the the lifestyle doesn't necessarily help it, you know, because no. you're, you're drinking a lot of beer and maybe having cigarettes and staying and, up too late, <laughs> staying up too late and whatnot. But I think that's okay, and and maybe we can contemplate next time we chat. You know, is Keith Richards an elite? operator you know oh man guys unbelievable in his in his field uh mate look it's been amazing coleman the journey so far uh, it's not just about today although I, I i thank you and preston for uh for uh, trusting me um with this uh with this or holding part of this office but the journey so far has been amazing it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and preston and really looking forward to mcti and uh, hopefully bringing a some good guests well definitely bring some good guests but uh being yeah. an adequate host to those guests over uh, over a few uh, team casts over the next period of time oh it'd be great as everyone has probably heard us talk about you know we've been itching to get i hope we don't drop the ball here both me and you harry <laughs> been itching to get a couple of astronauts on the team cast which is coming up pretty soon yeah so i'm pumped about that we won't yeah. talk about quite yet you know who it is but when we get them on it'll be really fun but you know one thing uh to share with the group since we had a you know personally just wide-ranging conversation here is if if there's somebody out in the community who we're missing and has particularly good input for us across this is for everybody this is not just me talking to harry everybody listening that you think has some really relevant experience that we should be sharing with the group don't please don't view it as a, oh, I don't deserve to be on there. Oh, I'm not sure if I should speak about that. Again, as Harry and I mentioned, the approach should always be, have I learned something really valuable that this community can use? We, we want to have you on the show. And so, you know, please reach out to us if you think, if you want to recommend somebody that you think we should really speak to. Definitely. And on that, uh, yeah, my, I plan in the next uh, number of team casts to, to bring some guests in to talk about, you know, the physiology and biology of resilience. Mm. You know, it's a fluffy word and concept that we all talk about, but um, what, what is it? And try and pin down what it means kind of from a physiological construct. Yeah, I want to talk, we've got another guest who will be coming on talking about a cognitive mind gym. Um, and yep. what does that mean and can it be done and, and what, what does the research look at this stage, uh, look like at this stage? And then you know, there's a, an, an operator or keep up a sleeve ex-colleague of mine who's just midway through his PhD and mm. uh, he's looking into, well, he, he's done a bunch of work or research into fear and how to harness that and how to, to think about it or reframe it in our mind. So we got looking forward to uh, a couple of uh more narrow conversations, I suppose, than we've had today, mate. But it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much, and have a great day. On what time is it there? Uh, it is, yeah, almost eight p.m. All right. Well, uh, I've got. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to head off and go for a bit of a run and a kick of the footy now. While well, we've got it, some sun in Melbourne. But um, thanks very much, Coleman, and we'll check in with you later. That's great, Harry. Thanks. It's been a huge pleasure talking to Coleman Ruiz. Uh, former SEAL team troop commander and cracking bloke. Uh, and it's also been a, a huge thrill to host the team cast, and I hope the accent wasn't too hard for you all to understand. I'll be back with some uh, great guests over the coming months. Topics will include uh, the science behind fear and stress, uh, coach wellbeing, and I hope to get uh, Dr. Eugene Aidman along to explain his uh, cognitive fitness framework. Uh, it's a tool for assessing, training, and augmenting individual factors underpinning high-performance cognition, which is something I know uh, is of increasing interest out in our community and more broadly. You can find out more about the MCTI at missioncti.com. On the website, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter or join our distribution list. And uh, feel free to share the team cast all over your favourite social media and podcast channels. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and I uh, hope you've enjoyed the team cast. Thank you.